When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guest is Dr. Paul Williams, who was the Labour candidate in the Hartlepool by-election. So as you can imagine, we've got a lot to talk about. Before I come on to that, firstly... um, the local elections, the Hollywood Senate and Police and Crime Commissioner elections have now happened. The results are all out. Personally, I think it's a nightmare that we don't just count them all on a Thursday night. I realise that's very selfish. I'm sure a lot of you agree. It's sort of trickling out of results over the weekend. We're still on Sunday having to watch some of the results come in. It's intolerable. I want to know what happened now. Anyway, um, it just made me think, actually, about the guests on the show during this kind of election season so um just as a catch-up of some of the guests that i've had on andy street uh the tory candidate for mayor of the west midlands held on so he's now in his second term um we had jackie bailey on who held her seat uh paddy tipping my old boss the former mp for sherwood lost as police and crime commissioner for nottinghamshire which i took i'm not took personally in the sense that i thought it was anything to do with me but i was just gutted for paddy because as you'll know from listening to that episode a phenomenal politician and a real loss um uh, who else annie wells i think came back on the list uh had annalise dodds on who's just been reshuffled in the shadow cabinet marvin reese uh won as labor mayor of bristol sean bailey was not did not become mayor of London, but got a better result than the uh, last candidate. Humza Youssef won. Uh, Liam Byrne, uh, by definition, if Andy Street won, then Liam Byrne lost. Adam Price plied, had a, a sort of okay night. So what I'm trying to say is, on the whole, coming on this show is good for your electoral prospects, um, sort of. Um, maybe maybe there's no link. Let's be honest, there is no link. So I'm not I'm not claiming that this podcast can make or indeed break political careers. Um, but I think overall, I mean, a, a cynical thing to do would just be to interview people who are likely to win general election campaign and go, wow, look, it was the political party. What won it? Um, but I can make no grand claim. Um, but I just thought we inter- I just thought um as a listener, you might be interested as to how um the people that you've enjoyed as guests in the last few weeks months have got on um don't forget you can email the show political party podcast at gmail.com this thread of um, awkward encounters with politicians has now taken on a life of its own i've had an email here from david um who said i used to be a sports coach for my local council while studying at university 
uh, I must have been about 18 at the time, the council was looking to create a new volunteer program that would get young people an experience of coaching sessions to young children. Um, in hopes of securing funding, they invited First Minister Jack McConnell. I mean, this is how long ago this was. It was a Labour first minister in Scotland. Anyway, it says Jack McConnell was invited along to a publicity event where local school children would receive sports sessions performed by such volunteers. However, they'd not yet set up the programme and had no volunteers available and used paid coaches from local council activities to fill these roles. Oh, I've got a deep sense of foreboding, David. As the First Minister and Press were going to be there, the council provided us all with a 30-minute media training session. Oh, this is amazing. Oh, the guy explained how it was important the council could not be seen to be for or against a political candidate and walked us through some examples of how the press might try and get you to take a political a particular position to create a story. On the day, the people running the event came up to us and reminded us this was a volunteer programme. We shouldn't mention that we were paid coaches because it would look bad in the press. Or indeed, years later, in a podcast. If you'd have told people back then, this might end up on a podcast. They'd have said, a what? Anyway, this combined with the media training, which basically said the press were to be feared, set up a pretty tense start to the day. Oh, I love it. We started doing the drills, games, exercises that we've planned with the kids. And eventually, Jack McConnell appeared, followed by sem- several members of the press. My station was right next to the entrance to the park, so after he made his introductions to the organisers, he was directed to me. He strode up to me with a really warm, friendly smile. The media in tow shook my hand and said, so, are you one of the volunteers on this (laughs) programme? To everyone else, I'm sure this would have seemed like a really innocuous question, but in my head, it was the most stressful thing he could have asked. David, I completely agree. It's the worst thing he could have asked you in the circumstances. I didn't want to embarrass him by reminding him that the programme wasn't actually up and running yet. And I didn't want to cause a scandal by revealing I was actually a paid coach pretending to be a volunteer. So after a brief internal panic, I smiled and said, hopefully. He laughed politely and then watched for a bit while I led a session with some of the children before moving on to meet others. David, let's just pause at this moment and let's all of us just appreciate what a great answer you gave. That was a great, great answer, David. Well done. You have genuine political skill and now. After all that build-up, the press never spoke to any of the volunteers. I just couldn't believe I had to use the media training I'd received on the politician. Oh, my word. David, that is one of my favourite emails because it really captures the tension. This is, I mean, that is very tense for those specific reasons. Um but whenever you take politicians somewhere, it's always a bit awkward. It's hard for people to chat to a politician when the press are there. And that is something, David, how could you have known? Because you sent that email in the past, that this was going to be part of the conversation I have with Paul in this podcast about Keir Starmer, how he relates to the public. So there you go. That is very, very fitting uh, for what we're covering here. And indeed, talking of serendipity, talking of timing and planning, These live dates I'm doing, the first date on the 24th of May, my guest is Peter Mandelson, the former MP for Hartlepool. How could I have known when booking these that that would, I mean, it's a star booking anyway. He's one of the great political stars of the time. But how could you have ever known that his time as Hartlepool MP would make that even more an amazing night than it was going to be. So on the 24th of May, and tickets are going so fast for that. 24th of May, Peter Madison, side of Arcee. On the 25th of May, Keir Starmer and Andrew Ledson, that sold out ages ago. I'm really sorry there's no more tickets for that. And on the 2nd of June, Jess Phillips and Esther McVeigh is also selling very fast. So 
bookings that in retrospect make me look like I knew what was going to happen. Um, uh, so there you go. So get tickets for those. I've um, put the link to that in the blurb, in the show notes, and uh, you can get them from mapford.com slash live. So email the show, politicalpartypodcast uh, at gmail.com. Uh, buy tickets to these special live events at the Garrick in the West End and the Vaudeville Theatre in the West End, which is very, very exciting. And leave an iTunes review. And thank you to all of those of you that do, because it helps get the podcast in the charts. Just, even if it helps one other person find it, then see it as your kind of civic duty. So on to today's guest, Paul Williams, who just a few days ago was Labour's candidate uh, in what was a crushing defeat in Hartlepool. Now, um, Perhaps people shouldn't have been as surprised as they were uh, at the defeat, given the context of the seat, the, the context of uh, the by-election and why it was happening in the first place, and other things, the vaccine, COVID, Brexit, Labour, all sorts of things. We talk about it all. And this is just a really frank, really honest account of what it was like to be a candidate in that election, why Labour lost, why the Tories did well, what Labour needs to do next what Keir Starmer is like as a leader and as a person. This is every question you'd want me to ask Paul Williams happens, is asked. <laughs> so why I worded it like that. Basically, we cover it all. And um, I know, having worked in politics, that a lot of candidates would not have wanted to do an in-depth interview um, for an hour uh, about what it was like to lose a by-election because it takes people a long time to get over these things, as you would imagine, Paul is blessed with uh, remarkable strength of character and a really um, great way of viewing politics and uh, rationalising it all and um, keeping his spirit and his optimism. I don't want to ruin anything we're about to talk about. So please enjoy. Um, this is, you know, of all the people I wanted to talk to in the wake of the election results, Paul was obviously at the top of the list. I'm delighted he came on. I'm delighted he's so open and honest. I will shut up and leave you uh, with this conversation with Paul Williams. Delighted to be joined by Dr. Paul Williams. Paul, firstly, thank you for coming on so soon after what must be such a difficult defeat. I mean, for people who haven't worked on campaigns, it's hard enough for the activists, but for the candidates, you're the one who has to stand on the stage and hear that result. Um, how have you been since polling day? I've been all right, but thanks for um, th thanks for asking. Um, uh, I mean, you have to be resilient um, in order to do this job because you have to be able to not take things personally. And of course, um, I take responsibility for the result. Um, um, but li life isn't about um, always succeeding. Nobody always succeeds in everything that they do in life. Um, it's about how you deal with adversity and difficulty and how you bounce back. Um, so I've thrown myself into my family my children I've been out on my bike with my friends um I'm, I'm not gonna um uh I'm, I'm not gonna sit around and mope about it um, I have to just get on with um with, with with dealing with life the way that it is of course I mean that is a that is an absolutely rational answer um and I would say nothing <laughs> less from a man of science but um, the reality is you know it's bad news it's hard to take I mean when uh, did you think you were going to lose at any point? When did it sort of dawn on you? So when I took it on, I knew that it was going to be um, a, a tough one. I, I, I you know, I realised when you look at the numbers from the previous election, then um, Labour didn't do, didn't really do that well. 
the previous Labour MP, Mike Hill, had sort of won accidentally because the anti-Labour vote had been split between the Brexit Party and the Tories. And so I knew that it was an unlikely win. But I I think, I I don't know, I'm perhaps a little bit guilty of a bit of an optimism bias. You always um, hope that you might be able to overcome the odds. Um, And of course, you know, there was when the, there was a chance there, and I was asked to um, to to kind of to stand up for the party. And you know, it is a team. You don't. You, we're, we're, I mean, you're. I'm, I did it as an individual, but I realised that the Labour Party is a team, and um, the, the the view within the party was that I was its best chance of of, of winning. And so I thought I'd give it a go. But I was never under any any illusion that I would walk it. Um, So I hoped that I might win it. But I I think I um, realised that you need to keep that sort of safety cushion under yourself, that that the reality is that um, the most likely thing that I'd be doing is facing defeat. That's so hard because for people who've never experienced a by-election, they are completely different to being a candidate for a seat in a general election. The focus is intense. And what was rare about this one was that both major party leaders visited. Party leaders don't usually visit by-elections for obvious reasons. They don't want to be they don't want to put their face to a potential defeat. But both Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer were in the constituency. Every by-election has its own microclimate. It was caused by the resignation of your predecessor, who stood down because of sexual harassment claims. All those things have an effect. Obviously, from London, people go, oh, my God, the Hartlepool's in the middle of the northeast. How on earth could Labour lose it? But on the ground, the reality is different. I mean, it's people talk about what it's like to be a candidate in a by-election. Was it as ferocious <laughs> as you'd feared? Um, so you know, the, each party leader came three times. Wow. Um, three visits from the Prime Minister, three visits from Keir Starmer. Um, uh, and, you know... It, I mean, it was. I, I, I did feel that um, there was loads of attention on me. But if you, um, I'm, I'm going to answer that in two ways. One is that if you, if you, you know, it's, it's because Vicky, my wife, always asks me, why do you, why do you put yourself through this? Um, and <laughs> how often part, does she ask you that? <laughs> just every day. <laughs> um, and it's, and it's because you know that is the price that you have to pay in order to have, to have the potential to do something really good. Because obviously, I believe that the um, I believe in what Labour stands for. I believe that a Labour government uh, having Labour MPs can make a really real positive difference, particularly for people that are disadvantaged. Um, the other way of looking at it is that um, you know my I've spent most of my career working as a doctor, not in politics, and as a doctor, stuff is really life or death. Um, not just the work that I've done in the NHS, but um, Vicky and I spent nearly five years living and working on the Uganda DRC border in a um, in a conflict zone with um, huge levels of malaria and HIV and maternal deaths. And you know, we we coped there, and we kind of felt that if I can, if we can cope in a situation that is kind of really bad. Then, then a lot of the political stuff is just a sort of construct, and so um, it, it's um, it's not it's not real pressure. It's 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 um, it's perceived pressure, and and so I kind of look back to the really hard times in my life and draw strength from the fact that I sort of survived that, and and therefore people calling me names or asking me difficult questions in the media uh, is something that I just have to overcome. 
Well, that's a very, uh, such a great philosophy on politics about perceived pressure, because I've seen, I mean, I felt political pressure myself and I've seen what it's done to colleagues and to candidates. And just being able to rationalise it like that is something that I think so few people in politics are, are capable of doing, perhaps because they haven't seen the things you've seen. But nevertheless, people will have suffered in their lives. And I think thinking of politics almost as um, that way of thinking about it is perceived pressure is so important. And, and relieving yourself of that pressure, I guess, means that you don't make the mistakes that candidates under pressure make. You're able to stay light. You're able to keep being yourself. Well, no one needs a candidate that has they people in political parties call it candidateitis, don't they? They um, somebody that's kind of tearing their hair out and stressing because that can that can um, increase the tension in the whole team when you're ranting and raving about stuff. Um, and so, I mean, I care loads about it. Don't don't mistake that for not passionately caring. But I um, I, I, I realise that it's kind of my job, and also it's a little bit of an audition for the role of being a political leader. And if you're serious about being a political leader, then, you know, it's it's, you know, the hardest jobs in politics are probably being the prime minister and then being the leader of the opposition. And they have you know big decisions to make about um, the, the impact on loads of people's lives. And if you're auditioning to say, look, I might and I'm not saying I'll have a, I have the skills to become prime minister. But if I'm auditioning, auditioning to maybe one day be a government minister or something like that, I need to I need to show that I've got my stuff my life sorted and that I difficult things can happen and it's not going to um, kind of knock, knock me off. And so I, I feel that you need to show um, you need to behave in a kind of calm, reassuring way. And part of that as well is about what you do when you're not at work. So even throughout the campaign, one of my mates um, got me out of bed, at, um, knocked, knocked on the door at 6.30 every morning and either took me out for a run or for a, for a bike ride in order to, kind of mean that I'm still doing exercise and you know that all helps with making sure that you feel kind of suitably tired at the end of the day so you sleep well you eat well that 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 kind of prepares you for the um for 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 what could be quite a rigorous ordeal if you're if you're not used to that so you you take on the campaign knowing that it's going to be difficult at the back of your mind fearing you might lose now once you get into the campaign as you say Political stuff call it candidatitis. Is there's often a breakdown between the the local party, the candidate, the local party in head office, the local party in the regional <laughs> office, the people that are kind of coming in from outside. There's all sorts of tension, and this happens to every party on a by-election. <laughs> it sounds like your ship was fairly harmonious that there wasn't candidatitis and you know leaflets being put out you disagreed with. Um, so, um, so actually, the relationship with the local party. Was um, was great. They they were the people that asked me to stand, and so that was quite a nice position to be in. There was there was some stuff in the national media about being um, that you know maybe me being on a you know on a short list of one and being parachuted in. But but Hartlepool's actually a town I know well. I've worked there for years. Um, it was so relationship with the local party good. Um, we had some people come in from um, so one of the shadow cabinet. Members Jim McMahon came to to sort of lead the political element of the campaign, and and Jim worked with me. Jim, Jim I mean, he's a lot more experienced in politics than I am, and um, he helped us to devise a, a campaign based around the issues about. Um, he, he he really wanted he he'd learned as a as a council leader that you need to have 
you know, a, a detailed and credible plan to put to people to, um, to, to get them to believe in you. And so he helped us to put that together. Um, now, of course, I don't know if anyone ever read it <laughs> because of all the noise of the, um, noise of the campaign. Um, but we felt like we had something that was, uh, that was credible, real, deliverable, um, and, um, uh, and, and we were giving it our best shot. Hodge Hill is a by-election that people really remember, 2004, when Labour delivered a very punchy campaign about immigration and things. Did you ever have any discomfort about any of the literature that was going out with your name on it? It sounds like that wasn't an issue for you at all. We actually, we, we, we kind of drew up a message and we made sure that we stuck to it. Um, I had discomfort about some of the things the Tories were saying about me, but we might, we might come to that later. Um, but... Um, but no, I, I, I mean, I realised that, I mean, it, it, if anything, Matt, it was, um, I mean, it's perhaps not the campaign I would have run if I'd been doing it myself. Um, but what we've, I mean, what we, you know, because the things that, um, you know, I, I, I might have put a little bit more focus on one issue rather than another, but it was the, um, but it was what, we were actually reflecting back what people and people on the doorsteps were telling us, and and so the campaign was built large, largely around issues to do with jobs, which is what everyone was telling us they were worried about about the NHS, and they were local issues rather than national issues. So it wasn't particularly nurses' pay; it was more to do with local services in the hospital and about police and crime. Um, and and they, they we, we were kind of in in a lot of harmony with the electorate on on the diagnosis where we where they didn't agree with us is that we were the people that had the solutions we didn't that we had the the right medicine for them if you like so what as a doctor that must have been hard to take so um, <laughs> what uh, what would you have what would you have majored on then if you, if you said uh, as you did that uh, you might have emphasized something more what would it have been okay so i think i, I i'm i'm passionate about reducing inequality um, and I'm passionate about the things that um, that Labour did in government to reduce inequality. Um, not only some of the um, the fiscal measures that we took in terms of child tax credits and stuff like that, but the investment that we made in Sure Start. And um, and, I, and I know that inequality kind of is set almost from the beginning of life. And if you get on a trajectory early on in your life where you are disadvantaged, then you stay disadvantaged. Um, and I think, you know, so that's where my personal politics comes from. So if I if I were being totally authentic and going to the electorate about the 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 change that I want to see in society, then then they're probably the things I'd have talked about more. But um, you know, I also realise that I'm part of a bigger team that um, that you know, they are things that are important to the Labour Party, but they're perhaps not the things that the Labour Party kind of majors on. And um, and perhaps I'm a little bit biased because many of those things are sort of health type interventions. You know, Sure Start is um, it's a bit education, but it's also a bit about supporting people's, it's about supporting, you know, mum's mental health because of the impact that can have on a, um, a, a, a new child about um, uh, reducing the impact of domestic violence and things like that. So, so I guess that's where my kind of personal politics comes from. Um, but I, I'm not saying I was unhappy with the um, with the campaign. I, I fully accepted it and um, and was kind of prepared to run with it and see where it went. And throughout the campaign, then there were obviously points you thought you're going to win. Every candidate goes through that. Even independent candidates who have no ground operation at some point. I'm sure Lawrence Fox at some point would have thought. <laughs> so there's that that is natural. But when you turned up at the counts, 
Did any part of you think you were going to win? Uh, well, I already knew. So you get a, you you get a call um, much earlier on in the evening. Um, so we uh, 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 and if anyone that's ever been involved in a by-election will know this: that you do some sampling, so you yeah. can see when they start counting the votes and. Uh, and it was pretty obvious to us earlier on in the evening that for every vote that we got, the Tories were getting two. Um, and so I, I think by about midnight, maybe one o'clock in the morning, we knew that, that it was. So that's when I um, I knew. Um, and then it's out just putting a game face on. Um, and the really lucky thing was that you didn't, I didn't have to put a full game. I didn't have to put a full game face on. I've lost twice in elections. I've won one and I've lost two. Um, uh, and there's nothing like the feeling of winning. Um, but it is, you know, all the, you know, when you lose, all the cameras are on you. They're looking to see what happens. Um, um, but this time, because of COVID, I had to wear a face mask. So I only had to put half a game face on. Um, people couldn't, you know, people... Uh, uh, but I was... Smiling underneath, I'm smiling underneath. It's um, it, you. You have to. Well, I feel like it's quite important to lose graciously. The first time um, I, I I won, I, be, I became an MP in 2017. Um, I beat a Tory, and his um, he gave a bit of a speech as the outgoing MP, and it wasn't very gracious. He was quite right. He said the Tories are going to be back very soon, and they were within two and a half years. But he kind of focused on that, and I, and I think. You know, you need to you need to be a good loser. I teach my kids to be good losers. One of um, and 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 you know, they don't like being good losers, but I think you still have to um, you still have to show a bit of grace. <laughs> I think that's a very good lesson. So um, you said that people uh, that of Hartlepool agreed with the diagnosis; they didn't agree with the medicine. So, what yes. were people saying to you on the doorstep? Because it doesn't. I, I read your excellent red box piece for the Times. It doesn't sound like people were hostile to Labour or hostile to Keir Starmer. So what was it? Um, they weren't hostile at all. It was um, totally different to the 2019 election where people were really angry. They were angry, mainly main, a little bit about Brexit, but mainly about the Labour Party leader. Um, I heard so many times, I'm not going to vote for you because of Jeremy Corbyn. People put posters outside their houses saying, you know, if you're late, we're, we're um, particularly people that had been in the forces where, you know, I've served my country. And, um, you know, if Labour think that they can knock on this door, then they can F off. Uh, it was wow. really angry in the, um, in, the, um, in the 2019 election. But this election wasn't like that at all. Um, everyone was really nice. And maybe that says something very positive about the people at Hartlepool that they're nice to you even when they're not voting for you um uh and, and it's interesting almost everybody um kind of defined themselves in terms of labor and it was either yes I'm supporting you as labor or I used to be labor but mm. um and um I just labor in 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 Hartlepool specifically and, and and maybe this is a bit more generalizable in other parts of the country as well but in Hartlepool specifically people just um said that they'd given their vote to Labour one time too many uh and they perceived that when you vote for a you know having voted for a Labour MP um and for a Labour council that that should have made things better for them and what they've seen is over the past um at least 10 years but possibly 20 years or even longer the the most of the rest of the world has progressed, but they saw that Hartley Paul had um, had stayed still or even gone back because people had lost so many services locally. Um, and they thought, well, we've voted for Labour and this is what's happened to us. And so we're really, we, do, we don't have 
any confidence in the fact that if we're going to vote for Labour again, suddenly everything's going to be much better. Um, and some of that was um, some of that I, I, I agree with. I, I, I think um, there, there are two things there that I mentioned. One is the MP and the other is the council. And actually, there haven't always been particularly good Labour councils in, in Hartlepool. People uh, are, are rightly very critical of some of the um, bad decisions that were made by people that perhaps weren't in it for the right reasons. The MP thing is a bit more difficult because, because actually MPs don't have that much executive power, do they? I mean, they don't have any executive power. If you're an opposition MP, you've got convening power. You can bring people together and you can knock heads together and you can try and then claim the credit for the decisions that you've catalyzed. But the actual decisions are always made by other people. Uh, and, um, and so... You know, you if you have to be quite skilled as an opposition MP to be seen as being actually making that difference. Uh, now, I, I, I did. I've been an opposition MP. I have made a real difference. Um, but it's it's kind of by begging other people to do stuff for you rather than. But when you're in power, you can actually just literally put an extra, you know, put an extra naught on the end of that line of a spreadsheet, and and someone's got a load of extra money to do something, or. Um, or you know, put it into a um, uh, you know, change the law because you've got a majority in order to make things happen. You've got it's um, you know what they what one one day in power is worth a year in opposition. It is. So what were people saying about the Tories then? Because some people say, well, this means people in Hartlepool love Boris. You know, Boris cuts through in places like this in a way that Labour people will never understand. Is there any truth in that? A little. Um, although they were talking more about Ben Houchin. Uh, who to um, every, everyone in Teesside knows that Ben Houchin is the Tees Valley mayor uh, who has an executive role. He's a doer. Um, he's, you know, he's got a budget and he's been able to use it in order to do things. And people didn't really mind about what he's done with it. The, some of the irony of what the, um, the Tees Valley mayor has done over the last few years is he used quite a lot of his money to um, the, the money allocated for transport to, to buy an airport that was failing in in, in public ownership. Uh, well, in, sorry, in, in kind of in, in half private, half public ownership. And he's designed a new model for it. He's put quite a lot of public money into it. Now, it's still failing, because, um, but that may well just be because of COVID and the whole um, airline industry has, uh, has um, been really struggling for the last year and a half. Um, but at least people saw that he was trying. And they saw somebody with, who was a Tory locally with some executive power who said that he'd buy an airport. He did buy an airport. Uh, and, and that was, for, in many people's minds, much, much more than Labour had ever done for them. And, and just on the Boris effect, did you speak to people on the doorstep who said, oh, I've never been a Tory, but it's Boris that's convincing me? They said, um, they said I think he's done quite, I heard quite a few times, the phrase i think he's done quite a good job in the pandemic because mm. um, of course the other you know there's loads of different factors that play in in this particular election and one of them was covid uh and that was quite hard for me to hear because from my point of view i've been on the nhs front line i had to make my own ppe because and, and i you know i wasn't i was doing a covid clinic i was seeing all the patients in hartlepool who were really ill with covid um and, and so I saw kind of us being let down over supplies. I saw some bad strategic decisions in the first wave around transferring people into social care, into, into care homes where 
um, tens of thousands of people died who perhaps wouldn't have died and all the impact that it had on social care staff. And then I saw in the second wave where all the science was telling us lockdown, 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 and the government sort of delayed and, and there was this battle going on and these alleged comments about bodies piling high on the streets. And, and then um, were we going to have Christmas? Were we not? And then everyone kind of mixed for Christmas and then didn't. And then everyone went back to school for a day um, and mixed again. And then school shut and it looked like a complete mess to me. But um, that, that um, collectively, that memory has, um, has kind of um, has been put into the past because of the success of the vaccine programme. And then I'd be like, but, um, but the vaccine programme is the NHS. And they gave all this money to test and trace and they wasted £37 billion and everything. Um, uh, in private companies and then the one thing they do right is to actually give the nhs something that that they're good at doing um, um but pe people give the credit to that to boris johnson um, he's done a um he's, he's done a masterful job of, of 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 not getting any of the blame for the things that have gone wrong for the economic damage for the deaths and for getting all the credit for something um for, for the one thing that's gone right ready to pop the question the jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Some people seem to think that there's something about his character that appeals, particularly to working class people, that he's the sort of guy you can imagine having a pint with. Uh, he doesn't watch what he says, and that's attractive to, to certain groups. Do you think there's any truth in that, that he's able to cut through in a way that perhaps Labour doesn't really have a politician like that? <laughs> um, so I think Labour probably does have some people like that. Um... <laughs> Who are they? Um, Angela Rayner? Well, so Angie, Angie, Angie certainly relates really well to people. Um, I think Lisa Nandy's quite a star as well. I think people find but not her in very the Boris affable. way, not in the kind of he might um, tell a couple of rude jokes. <laughs> I've heard Angie Rayner tell some rude jokes. <laughs> I'm not going to repeat. I'm not going to repeat. Probably about Keir Starmer after this week. <laughs> um, but you're, you're right. He's a he's a personality, isn't he? He's a character. He's a you know, he's a caricature of himself. Um, and he's got that, he's got the thing that I guess all politicians want is the ability to just sort of shrug off bad things and, and, and plough on regardless. Uh, and you know, it, it, there are many of us that, you know, every word that we've ever said is kind of picked over, picked over and, um, and thrown back at us. Maybe Boris Johnson, a bit like Trump, has just done so many things kind of outrageous things that people are used to it and they price it in and um I, I, I mean I don't I don't think it's right and I think we have to carry on I mean I think what 
there is a moral purpose to politics. There is a there is a moral purpose about um, trying to um, make our country better for everybody. There are principles that you should follow, uh, and I and I and I do think there's something you know you need to conduct yourself in private in the way that you conduct yourself in public. Um, I think you know there are there are rules around you know if somebody is handing a wad of notes to a politician, then you have to declare it because you know the Otherwise, there's this perception that they might, you know, what, why else are they giving you a wad of notes? Um, but it seems to it seems that when we tried all those sort of sleaze things with Boris Johnson and we try um, kind of reflecting back some of the outrageous comments that he's apparently made. But um, but um, for, for, for many, many people, they're just very forgiving of it. And they um, they'd rather have a character than and he found that in London as well, didn't he? I mean, he was um, he, he he's won quite a lot of elections and and, and London before Boris Johnson was a Labour city and since Boris Johnson has been a Labour city. Um, but he managed to, um, he, he, he found that a lot of people were attracted to his, um, to his style there. I, I, I don't personally like it. And, um, and I know that people who work with him as well find him um, very insincere, very, you know, it's very difficult to take anything that he says at face value because he says one thing to one person, another to another. It's, um, um, but the electorate seem to um, seem to find it endearing, don't they? Elements do, um, but that electorate is push and pull, isn't it? There's there's an element of Boris Johnson that people find attractive. These elections, as you say, took place during COVID, and in England, in Scotland, and in Wales, people stuck with the parties that were in charge during this crisis, almost regardless of how those crises have been handled. So maybe that's a lesson as well. But there's been so much focus specifically on on Hartlepool and the future of the Labour Party and where Labour is headed. And I think some people might have said, well, we expected them to lose these sorts of places under Jeremy Corbyn and they won them. We expect them to win them under Keir Starmer and he's lost. I mean, it is, how much of a crisis is this for Keir Starmer personally? I think Keir has to be very calm about this um, because he would have preferred to have won but this, um, okay. I, I think I'm, I, I'm, you might accuse me of optimism bias here, <laughs> um, but, but because, because, you know, and I'm going to start by saying that we got less of the vote than we did in the previous election. Um, but actually people on the doorstep were, um, there was no, there's no hostility to Starmer at all. And there's actually quite a lot of people that are, that would con would contemplate voting for him, that wouldn't contem wouldn't have contemplated voting for for Jeremy Corbyn, um, and and when you're and change isn't just an on off switch that you flick. Change is people go through a cycle of 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 not even thinking about something to thinking about to then getting ready to change and then changing and and it, and it feels to me like people have people are moving through that cycle with Keir. Now he needs to do stuff to attract them to him and. Uh, and, and so he does have a massive challenge to do that, to define who he is, what he stands for. But I think it's also his opportunity because every leader kind of every leader needs um, uh, that kind of crisis in order to then show their true metal. Um, and um, you know, this 
I, I do think the next few months are going to be crucial for Keir Starmer in order to to be able to really, because he's kind of had the excuse for the last year, a, a valid one, that COVID has meant that he hasn't ever given a speech to a room full of people. He said he hasn't, you know, he's never managed to kiss a baby or shake a voter's hand or, or do all the normal things that you'd expect a politician to, um, to do. And there's something about that. He has been, he has been quite stifled. Um, there aren't those excuses over the next six months. Uh, and there is the chance for him to, um, he's got, he has quite a lot of control over uh, over the party. He's got control over the NEC with, of, of the party. He can um, he can build the party in his own image. He has to be allowed the, the, the chance to do that because um, I've, I've spent I've spent four days with Keir during the course of the campaign, much more time than I'd ever spent with him before, and he is a really good leader. He is credible. He's compassionate. He is very considerate. Um, he has and he has really great qualities um and but it's no good me just saying that people need to see that for themselves and where are his politics you think we get the sense that he's to the right of jeremy corbyn but is he possessed with the sort of same zeal that tony blair had to drive the labor party to the center ground to really quite aggressively get his tanks onto tory lawns or is that not something we should hold our breath for with keir starmer yeah, I don't know. Is the is my answer to that? He um, the the only time we talked about um, kind of poli- policy, I suppose, rather than politics, um, with him when he was when he talked about the work of um, he talked about the work of Sir Michael Marmot, who is an expert in health inequalities um, and how uh, how he has been you know he, he he wants to develop a set of policies around um around where the evidence lies around um some of the things i was talking about towards the beginning of life but also the importance of um, education and skills and the importance of provision of work uh and and the difference that that can make to help create make create a more equal society so i think i mean he's he's certainly a pragmatic man he's not there isn't that uh, kind of ideological doctrine um, that he has, um, but I, you know, do, does the centre ground still exist in politics? Do, pe- do people? Um, I, I never heard people really defining themselves as being left or right or moderates or progressives or whatever. Um, you know, Brexit's made quite a big difference to that uh, in that you know the pe- people's Brexit identity is much greater than their left-right identity. Um, uh, and I think Keir's challenge is to show that he's he's relevant to the way in which I mean, so society's changed, and it's politicians' job to interpret that and to um, and to pre- pre- then reflect back how things could be even better. Uh, and, and, and I don't particularly think that's the politics of um, of left right for Keir Starmer. And with Brexit, then. I mean, in some ways, that opens up a new divide, as you say. In other ways, I think people shouldn't get too preoccupied with... Brexit's not just about a relationship with the EU, it's a whole cultural thing. Um, yeah, it was never... It, it feels like it was almost never about our relationship with the <laughs> EU. It was, about, um, it was about being listened to by politics. It's about people feeling left behind. It, it was about... Um, and actually, the, you know, the, the, the logical arguments about trade deals and stuff are almost um, irrelevant it's about a sense of national identity isn't it and they're the they're the things that are um uh, that we that, that we that, that we need to face as politicians and can 
arch remainer Keir Starmer ever appeal to leavers in the northeast or indeed anywhere? Um, so yes, um, I, I, I don't necessarily agree with you characterising him as an arch remainer. Um, uh, uh, Fervent remainiac, <laughs> pro Brussels. Oh. I'm going to be far. I'm going to use far less um, journalistic language. I'm going to say, on balance, he probably felt it was in his his country's national interest to remain within the European Union um, at right, that point yeah. in time. Um, but um, so I don't think Starmer is a is a is an arch anything. Um, uh, I, I think he's over it um, in terms of you know, it not it no longer being about remain or leave, but it being about success or failure. Um, and, and, and he, and, and having to make a success of where we find ourselves. There's, there's nothing about Keir Starmer that wants to go back into the European Union. But having said that, um, that's not the cultural issue at, uh, at the heart of the matter. Um, and if people perceive that Labour didn't listen to them, then we have to really send strong political signals to show that, um, that we um, that we that we, that we have listened, and, uh, and even I was talking with a, um, an MP on the phone last night um, who'd, who'd helped me in the campaign. I spent most of the week, much of the weekend, calling volunteers and other people that had helped me just to kind of thank them for everything that they've done. And this MP said, "You know, I wonder if we even need to apologise to people about the way that we behaved over Brexit." Um, because we need to do something, we need to send a really strong signal to, um, to the electorate to say, look, we're, we, we, we are listening to you. And, 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 and maybe in order to, um, to buy us the space in order to be able to do that, we need to do something really big and say, look, we're really sorry, we got it wrong. Um, we, you know, we, sh- we, we should have just listened to what you told us the first time rather than kind of prolonging the agony throughout the whole of Theresa May's premiership around, um, you know, will we, won't we leave, how, what, what the deal will be, another referendum or not. Um, and, and it's that that's got a lot of people angry with Labour as well. And I think there's something in that. I think we need to, um, to, really, to really show that we've, done, that we've listened and taken that on board rather than just saying it. I don't think it's Brexit that Labour needs to apologise for. I think it's the direction of the party since 2010 certainly since 2015, and say, we've been talking to ourselves, we got ourselves completely, we were led by a man who like, who's under whose leadership the party was held for Jewish people, and we were totally irrelevant. I mean, Brexit, because there, because there was a hung parliament, people kind of sensed that, well, that was a verdict of the public, that it was kind of hung out mm. there, and therefore, as a result, the debate was live and it was irresponsible not to explore every option as Parliament did, apart from a second referendum. Uh, so I don't think that, I don't know, instinctively that feels like, if you're going to apologise for anything, and apologies are tricky in politics, as Nick Clegg knows. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's more that we're really sorry we basically went mad for five years. <laughs> it would be, a, would be a better start. But that was a, that's a tricky one for, um, for people to apologise for as well, because, of course, the, um, uh, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't MP at the time, but the MPs voted had a vote of no confidence in the leader, didn't they, back in 2016? Yeah. Um, and yet the leader hung on. I and mean, that's just unprecedented in political history for that to happen. Um, it's been it's been such a uh, such a strange time. Um, and of course, you know, Corbyn was challenged, but the Labour members then um, gave him 
uh, their backing. And then the electorate, he didn't do as badly as people thought that he would in the 2017 election, which bought him a bit more time as well. Um, but you're right. Uh, you know, we, 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 we've got to move on from the Corbyn era. I mean, it was really interesting in this election, just going back to Hartlepool, um, uh, that there some people from the um, from from the kind of Corbynite left of the party did challenge me. Um, someone called Thelma Walker, who used to be a Corbynite MP, um, and uh, she got 250 votes. So she did even worse than I did. <laughs> That's some comfort. <laughs> um, yeah. So does Keir Starmer need? I mean, he needs a moment, doesn't he? In the sense that any leader does. It's not unique yes. to him. Obviously, everyone says yeah, that's Blair. Clause four. You have that clause big four. moment yeah. where you say, the party has changed, it's moved on. I'm in charge and we are moving. Does he need something like that? And if so, what yeah. is it? Yeah. Um, so he kind of almost had it with, um, with, the, with the suspension of Jeremy Corbyn, didn't he? But people have sort of forgotten that and it was a bit botched because he... Um, was he in? Was he out? Yeah. He's been kind of half suspended, hasn't he? So, so and also that, that's that, only that, that's only part of the problem, isn't it? That's like a telling off for wrongdoing. Clause four was about I'm. We are shifting the emphasis of the party. This is like a this is an ideological shift. And that's why that was so powerful. Is Keir Starmer needs to draw a line not just under Corbyn's anti-Semitism, as in the anti-Semitism that happened on Corbyn's watch, but the rest of it as well. It's not that the rest of it was okay, bar the anti-Jewish racism. It's all the other stuff needs moving on from as well. So it needs to be bigger than that. But then, and, and, guess what is it? And this is, and this, and, the, and, the, and this is difficulty because Corbyn won the leadership. Sorry, Starmer won the leadership of the party by promising uni, party unity. But if the price of party unity is that we continue to be irrelevant to the electorate, then it's too big a price to pay. And so I think he needs, he does need that signal to show to the um to the electorate that he's on their side um and and that means closing off um a, a lot of the argument within the party where we're talking to ourselves um and uh, and and directly showing the, the Labour party is relevant to the things that people and 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 spend all of his time talking about things that are that are relevant to people's lives and none of his time talking about NEC meetings and CLPs and um, which candidate here or there and all of the terrible things. And John, Johnson showed that, actually. So when I, I, I watched Johnson become leader. Uh, and if we wind the clock back, not too far away, actually, not too long ago, to even to September 2019, Johnson was in a pretty weak position as leader. Um, he'd lost vote after vote after vote in Parliament. He'd had many of the he'd had he'd, he'd suspended many people um, as um, uh, um, he suspended the whip on on many of his MPs because they were they weren't backing him. The Supreme Court had just ruled against him um, for illegally proroguing Parliament. Um, but he was ruthless throughout it. He, he um, you know he didn't. He, he, he didn't take any prisoners at all. He, he, he ploughed on determined that, um, that he would talk directly to the people over the heads of Parliament. And, and, and Starmer, I think, probably needs to behave in a similarly ruthless way. And it's perhaps, you know, we'll find out whether or not it's in his nature. I don't know if even he knows whether it's in his nature because he hasn't had to be that ruthless in his life before. But he, he needs to talk over the heads of the Labour Party 
and 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 directly to the people of this country and 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 show them what a difference he would make. And if he does that, then I think he'll get everybody's respect. And what these elections do really is give him. I mean, you refer to it as an opportunity, and you're right. He can say to the Labour Party, "Look, I ran as a unity candidate. I want to keep us all together, but pursuing." You know, the course we're on is disaster and it's already littered with four disasters and there's a fifth one coming. Arguably, at least, unless we really change course here and do a few things differently. So in a way, the urgency is uh, is raised by by these results. Oh, oh, there were good results for Labour in there as well. And it's important to say that, that that Labour had some very good results. and, and again, often in parts of the country that previously had success in chipping Norton, which right. uh, which will, <laughs> will baffle a lot of people. And, in, on left and, and right. in, Worth- in, in Worthing as well, in places on the south coast that um, that we never would never have thought. So, so we were a bit uh, unfortunate in the way that the um, the worst happened at the start of the weekend um, with Hartlepool, and that dominated the news. And actually, things have got progressively better from over the weekend. But I don't disagree with your um, with, with with the argument that you're making at all. You're you're absolutely right that that, that time's t- time is running out. We've actually we've probably we've probably got an election in two years' time, and the and people aren't going to make up their minds in that final six weeks of campaign. They're going to be making up their minds very very soon about Keir Starmer. They they might have give, they might give him the benefit of the doubt because of the pandemic in the way in which people have been very generously given Boris Johnson the benefit of the doubt. But now's his chance. He's got a crucial six months in order to make that um, that breakthrough, and he needs to send strong signals. Um, he needs to do. He needs to find his claws for moments. He needs to do totemic things in order to um, to, um, to to come out. And it will be that you know it's the true test of him as a, a as a well, it's, the, it's the first big test that he's going to face uh, as a leader. And we shouldn't underestimate the huge progress that he has made when he took over. Labour was beyond irrelevant. I mean, Labour was repellent in in a way that I've never seen it before. It's not just that people disagreed with it; they were actually shocked at how bad it had got. In terms of the tone of the party, the behaviour that was allowed, the questions in the wake of the Salisbury attack. I, you know, in history, I think he's <laughs> really Labour comes out, will come out of modern history very badly because it won't be long before retrospectives are written. And, and actually, it's incredible looking back, even after a short period of time, about how bad the party got, particularly the leadership. So we shouldn't underestimate that having a sensible leader actually represents huge progress that having someone who can effectively hold the government to account is huge progress. Having a national figure who is sensible, pragmatic and thoughtful itself is huge progress. So we shouldn't be, and I, and I mean this not just as Labour people, because I don't care myself really as a Labour person. I mean, the public, the country shouldn't go, well, this is absolutely, uh, you know, dead. Because Labour has made actually huge progress, and and were it not for Keir Starmer, and imagine Corbyn could have somehow stayed, or that, or say Rebecca Long Bailey would have won, I guess imagine what the results would have been like. Um, yeah, they um, and actually there's a bit of a time lag, isn't there, in catching up because not everybody I think had realised just how bad the Labour Party had had, had got. Um, I I shared an office with Luciana Berger. Um, who um, many listeners will know was a, was a, a, a Jewish Labour MP who was forced out of the party really because of the um, of, of horrific anti-Semitic uh, abuse that I 
you know, she shared with me on a daily basis. I, I, I saw really close up just, um, just how horrific it was. And it was all done in the leader's name as well. And she always said to me, um, why is he not putting a stop to this? He has the power to put a stop to this and he, and he, and he isn't. Um, yeah. and, it, and it was, it, it, you're right. It was, it was absolutely horrendous. And, and Starmer has rooted that out completely from the party. Um, he has, you know, there is, he, he's apologized for the, um, for, for the party's behavior. He's fully accepted the, the AHRC recommendations and he's got um, a team of, of really talented people with a lot of experience in the um, of, of, of leadership. I, I met one of his team who who worked on the Nolan Commission actually that set the principles in in public life. Who's now leading um, a lot of his. She she came for a day to help on the on, on the campaign trail, but um, but but actually most of her work is um, is in is in the kind of internal mechanisms of a Labour Party and making sure that we get everything right in order to root out anti-Semitism. So you're right, there's been enormous progress made, but that's all inward looking. And so that's kind of the problem that the public aren't going to, that's the that's sort of the least that you should expect from the Labour Party, that we're not racist. Um, uh, the, yeah. um, you know, we are the party who, you know, I, I, I became interested in the Labour Party um, through anti-racism. I was, you know, I was in, I was, um, uh, um, I, I became politicised. Okay, a bit, a bit through the sort of the, the, the minor strike and the and the struggles of Thatcherism, but 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 also through um, the anti-apartheid movement and where and and how Labour um, stood up against the racism of apartheid in South Africa and on the side of Nelson Mandela. Um, and and it's deeply shameful that we became such an intolerant racist party and yeah, never 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 again. Uh, uh, and and. But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of the work that Keir's done. He, he, he had, he, he's made great progress. But, but it's time to, it's time to stop talking about that and, 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 and talk. Um, I, I, I don't think, I don't. He wants to still be talking about it. He wants, he, he wants to be. Um, he's one, one moment in the campaign was really sort of um, um, emblematic, I guess, of for, for me when I was with Keir of, of, of how just he wants to break away from talking about the Labour Party and talking to the public. Um, he had um, a couple of photographer and, and a film um, crew with him um, from the Labour Party that were filming him when we were out. And he he wanted to just go and have some conversations with people and, and, and listen to it unfiltered about what they feel about him and about Labour and about their town. Um, and he could see that people having cameras watching you meant that um, people were just a bit reticent about coming up to him. And he was, well, he, he, he swore and he said, you know, this is why people get so frustrated with Labour because they think we just come here for a photo opportunity. And I don't want a photo opportunity. I want to, I actually want to be, and he made, you know, he made, he, he asked the people that were filming him to, to leave, to go away. So he genuinely could just sort of wander in a crowd and chat with people in order to hear um, the, the, the voices, the people that happen to be hanging around at Seaton Carew Seafront that, uh, that afternoon. He, he, he wants to be doing that. He, he absolutely wants to be doing that. And he's a very likeable bloke. I wonder if he needs to do a bit more of the PR stuff, if he needs to be on non-political telly a bit more and be a bit more comfortable going on The One Show and with Holly and Phil and, and just... <laughs> I know a lot of politicians don't want to be celebrities, but... If you're trying to get away from talking about the Labour Party, then <laughs> go to places that aren't political, I guess, and maybe engage yeah. with the public a bit more. I'm kind of surprised that he hasn't done a bit more of that because, you know, being really crude about it, he's charismatic, he's likeable, he's good looking, he's got a good haircut, he plays football. 
you know, there's, he's got a lot going for him. He's not a kind of stiff, awkward leader where, you know, the, the classic thing is where people go, oh, if only you met them, you'd like them. And you think, but he comes across well. And he's he comes across as a, as a charismatic bloke. He's got presence. So I think, uh, and I know COVID's made it really hard, but I'd get him into places that aren't that political more often. Get him on those. Informal. Yeah, he's good at that. He's, yeah. he's good at. He's 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 really good at that. Um, we had fish and chips with him one night. Just um, Vicky, my wife, and our kids. Um, and he was really comfortable talking to the kids as well. Um, and he was equally comfortable. I've got two very different children. Um, one was um, when we were eating fish and chips. One was berating the fact that we were eating fish and chips with plastic forks. And you know, loads of kids. Loads of kids now are really concerned about the environment. And um, and she was asking Keir what he's going to do to save the environment. And he was great with her. He was very passionate about that. Um, my other kid was just um, telling him about the time she put fake poo in my bed, um, and uh, and how and how much um, she enjoyed playing practical jokes. But he was equally comfortable with her, and he talked about some of the practical jokes that his family make. He's a you're right. He's got charisma. He's a he is a He's a. I mean, I don't know. Being a normal person is a is is a is, is is a good thing or not. But there's nothing there's nothing grand is. about him. He comes from a. He is a. He's a normal. He's a normal but very talented person. Yeah, I think he comes across really well. I'd want to see him on stuff. I think he's an asset. And I think the danger is is that people go, oh well, Boris is a character, which means, and obviously, you want a politician that's been themselves. And I think Keir Starmer has been himself. And I think he's really, really good in the comments. And I know that's one of those things that apparently doesn't cut through. I think it accounts for something somewhere because people go, that's a professional guy and he's asking the right questions and good on him. Um, and it just makes you look like a leader if you get it right. Um, but also he's funny and he's, he's, he's good with the informal stuff. He's, he's, uh, he's a likeable guy. He's got interest. He can really talk to people. He's warm. See, get him on telly all the time. I'm going to tell you another story he told me. He said that um, he told a story about somebody that had, um, when he was director of prosecution, public prosecutions, um, somebody um, impersonated him um, on a dating app. Have you heard this story? Yeah, um, you know what? He told uh, it on this podcast. It's one of the most oh, okay. incredible. Place. <laughs> it's, it's such. And I think this. I think this person got to sleep got to sleep with about twelve women as Keir Starmer, um, and ended up in prison because of it. But it's hilarious. He tells it much better than I possibly could. Um, but yeah, the, he's he's lived, and I think yeah. But but yeah, the point is that um, if um, if he can you know he can rip the mask off, and if he can and take his tie off and uh, and and enjoy being out, he um he bumped into. He's also um, one day when he came to visit me, he bumped into a. Um, he was staying at his hotel, but he had to rush off to give an interview. And there were a group of um, lads sitting outside who gave him a little bit of a hard time. And they were drinking. Uh, they were they were drinking, and they said, "Come over here and have a chat with us." Um, and he said, "I'm really, really sorry, but I've got. I'm promised. You know, I need to go on this visit. I need to do this interview and stuff." But he said, um, "When I come back, I'll um, I'll meet you." And he did. He stuck to his word, and he came back um, to the town about eight days later. And he did it privately. He didn't have any cameras there. Um, and he met this group of six lads um, in a pub for for a pint, and he just chatted through politics with them. Um, so it it isn't all um, he's he, he he has got that natural common touch, um, uh, and he's he's not prepared to put he he's not hiding uh, as well. He's prepared to put himself in difficult situations in order to try and um, make his case. And he realizes that he's got a, he's got a job to do. What sort of lads were they then, and what sort of a hard time are they giving him? Well, I think he said. I, mean, I didn't. I didn't. I wasn't with him. Um, but he said that they were. 
um, they were saying that they were going to, you know, they were kind of jeering him and saying, oh, we love Boris and stuff like that. Um, and he, he Just wanted... Just local Tory councillors. But he wanted to, um, he, he wanted to kind of talk more about it. And he said... Um, you know, I guess he just he stuck to his word, and I don't know. You know, you never know which way these people ended up um, ended up voting, but you have to put the time in with people, and you have to. And you, you know, as the leader of the opposition, you can't do that with everybody. But maybe that's why the celebrity thing and appearing. Johnson did it with "Have I Got News for You," didn't he? He got people. He was in every um, every living room, and people got to um, to know him through that. Um, and yeah, yeah uh, Starmer will need to find his own. Have I got news for you? <laughs> he will. Um, so, Paul, what happens for you now personally? You're in this incredible situation where you've stood for Westminster three times in four years, and as you said at the start, won one, lost two. You obviously, still have political ambition because you're still for Parliament next week. I mean, what's your next move? Um, so, it, short term. Uh, is I'm 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 going to work in about an hour to work in a uh, I'm a I'm a doctor I'm working in a um, in an urgent care centre I'm doing the COVID clinic in Hartlepool tomorrow uh, and I, I'm going to enjoy the summer with um, working a little bit as a doctor and being with my kids who and one of the costs of politics is that you don't get to spend anywhere near as much time with your family as you. Uh, as you want to. Um, I've, got, I've got to work out whether or not I've got a political future. Um, and I, the answer to that is I, I, I don't really know. Um, people do come back from losing. In, it's one of these funny professions, isn't it, where people do come back in politics from losing badly and, and are still very successful. Theresa May managed to lose a by-election in the northeast of England and, and actually go on to be a prime minister, home secretary and a prime minister. Um, so I know that it's not it's not the, always the death knell for a political career. Um, I, I want to serve the Labour Party. I, I'm, I'm a team player, and whatever way I can take what I've learned and what skills I have in order to be useful to um, to the party in the future. Um, but I'm not um, I, 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 I'm not thirsty for um, for another election um, in the in the near future. I'm quite happy to bide my time. Uh, and I'm very, you know, I'm very fortunate in that I have a, um, I have a profession um, that I enjoy working in, that um, where I can, I can serve the community in a different way, and and for the moment, I'm very happy to do that as well. And you would think that the next election would be a great time to be a Labour candidate because obviously after such a after four defeats on the bounce and and the last one so bad. Now, obviously, perhaps these this week's results show that things can still get worse. But you would hope that Labour is in a position where it's winning more seats last time than it did in 2019. So that was should you know that would be a, a sort of very hopeful intake. So the, the opportunities might improve in the coming years for you. Um, it, it, it's not particularly about me, honestly. It's more about the party. Um, things can things c- can't get any worse. Doesn't sound like a great theme tune for an election um, <laughs> rally, does it? <laughs> um, and things things could get worse. Look at what happened to Labour in Scotland. Um, we we have to earn people's trust and people's votes rather than just assume that the political pendulum is going to swing back towards us. Um, uh, my um, you know, my view on it is that Labour needs to choose the um, the people most likely to win. And when I, you know, when I think about the 
kind of Labour people that in, inspire me from the past. The um, it, it's Labour winners that are, that are that are relevant. It's you know the Attlee, it's Wilson, it's Blair, and it's the Labour winners now, like people like Andy Burnham, who um, who are the ones that it, inspire me. We need to choose the very best candidates in the um, in in the places that would be would prove the um, to be the best representatives and um, and put our case to the electorate and um, if. Um, if, if Starmer gets things right uh, over the next six months, then I'm um, then I'm optimistic that we'll come back. But it's um, it's a it's a huge challenge for him, but it's also his opportunity. Paul, this has been such a pleasure, and thank you for coming on so soon. After I mean, I, I've worked on by-elections as a member of staff, and I took those defeats very personally. I, I, you seem to have taken it very very well, which is so reassuring, regardless of which party people support when they listen to this. <laughs> I, I'm sure there'll be just, you know, people care about candidates, people, particularly people who listen to shows like this. It's a huge deal to put yourself forward. You make yourself vulnerable when you stand for, for any office. It's a huge thing to take on as a person. So, I mean, I mean, I mean this is a real compliment. You seem absolutely fine. <laughs> I am. I am. And, you, you, you know, you've grilled me for a full hour. I think I'd have... I'd have I'd have cracked under your forensic interviewing if um, if there was any problem. <laughs> Thank you so much, and good luck for the future. We should keep an eye out. Thank you, Matt. It's been lovely to chat with you. Cheers, mate. Well, there you go, Paul Williams. I mean, in a way, you because he was so optimistic and so clear. And just not in the doldrums at all. I mean, that doesn't mean that it didn't hurt and that he doesn't wish he'd won and that he's not going to reflect on it for a bit. But um, having dealt with defeated candidates before, I, I thought it might be a bit uh, a bit more raw. So I'm just, uh, just as a human being, just relieved uh, that, uh, that I didn't... <laughs> you know, I thought at times I might have to kind of rally him uh, or something. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm pleased that didn't have to happen. Uh, as I'm sure all of you are, you, hard. So politics is so brutal. Democracy is so rough, um, and it is those fine margins sometimes. And when you're a candidate in a by-election, so, and anyway, so much of it is out of your control. Um, so you tr- have to try and not take those defeats personally. And indeed, on the flip side, um, not uh, over um, <laughs> congratulate yourself for any victories you might have in politics, but. There we go. What a brilliant insight into what happened um, in Hartlepool specifically to Labour last Thursday and what Labour needs to do next and what they're capable of doing next. And just about Keir Starmer as a leader, as an individual and what uh, what he needs to do next. So that uh, just as always, I, was, I could have done another two hours. With so much more I wanted to ask. But I think I covered the main things. And who knows, one day in the future, I might have pulled back on the show when he's back in Parliament uh, as a Labour MP. So thank you for downloading this. I've got a few more episodes planned just to uh, analyse what happened. But obviously, Paul was top of my list for obvious reasons. And I just think that's a, a really great account of what really went on behind the headlines and what it was like on the ground and uh, how it felt as an individual to go through it. So I've got a few more uh, plan that will be a wider view about what happened in, in other parts of the country. So look forward to those um, because because of the way the results are done, you don't get that analysis on the night anymore. So I just think for the public, as a political fan, I get frustrated. Um, but as a, 
I just think the public, you kind of tune in on the night of the election at about 10 o'clock. You want to see the exit poll. You want to kind of know what's going on. You don't get told it straight away. And then this narrative sort of unfolds and morphs as, 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 as the weekend elapses. And in the end, it just ends up feeling a bit dissatisfying for all concerned, I think. But anyway, um, we will talk about, of course, all the other things that happened about, um, about what happened in Scotland, in Wales and other places as well. So... Um, by no means is this the end of, but equally, I don't want to overly dwell on something that's now in the past, but I just think as a snapshot of public opinion um, in in Britain, uh, I think it's really good to go over and see, get under the bonnet of the car and see what really happens. So anyway, don't forget, email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com, particularly if you have an awkward story about meeting a politician. Um, leave a review on iTunes or Acast, wherever you listen to this. If you can leave a star rating or just leave a, a, a pleasantly worded positive review, then I'd be very, very grateful. And um, yes, buy tickets to the live dates, the 24th of May with former MP for Hartlepool, Peter Mandelson. Of course, he's so much more than the former MP for Hartlepool, um, but that is one of the strings on his bow. So that, of course, will be something we talk about with Saeed Avasi, who is absolutely superb. The following night, Keir Starmer and Andrea Leadsom. And on the 2nd of June, two megastars, Jess Phillips and Esther McVeigh. I can't wait to be back on stage in front of a live crowd. So thank you for downloading this. I'm kind of <laughs> struggling. To, I'm just going to end it there. Thank you very much and goodbye. See you soon. Ta-ra. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.